This episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Underground, the place to connect with hundreds of smart copywriters who share ideas and strategies to help you master marketing, mindset, and copywriting in your business. Learn more at thecopywriterunderground.com. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes, and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Rob and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 198 as we chat with copywriter and creative director Sam Pollan about working at an agency that's focused on great copy, what it takes to build a verbal identity, his biggest struggle as a creative and as a copywriter, and why he wrote a book about anorexia. Welcome, Sam. Hey, Sam. Thanks very much for having me, guys. Yeah, we're excited to have you today. And let's just start this conversation with how you ended up as a creative director. What was that story? Yeah, so I think the, the story for me is probably the story similar for a, a lot of people in that position in that I just worked my way up, basically. So I um, I did a degree in uh, natural sciences, so zoology and psychology of all things. Um, so not really related to what I do now at all. And then I worked in photography for a little bit. And then I kind of worked in marketing and sort of fell into copywriting. So copywriting was not a kind of deliberate choice for me, but it was something that I did some of in a kind of marketing job and found out I was um, good at or, you know, good enough at. <laughs> and then honed my skills and kind of developed and found, you know, found that that was something that I, I found interesting and, and kind of had some talent for. Um, and so went from there. Um, about um, five, six years ago, I, I started working with uh, my now boss, um, Mike Reed, who, who set up the agency I worked for, it's called Readwords. Um, and I was initially hired just as kind of, you know, a writer, sort of, um, he was starting to build an agency. And then we have grown from that point. So we now have a team of writers and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a deputy creative director. So I, I, you know, direct other people's work as well as still doing quite a bit of writing in my own um you know, writing that I've done as well as writing I'm directing from other people. Sam, most of the people that we talk to on the podcast are in the freelance world and your career seems to be a little bit different. Like you've worked in-house and in agencies primarily. Will you talk a little bit about what it takes to find a job as a copywriter in those kinds of environments? Yeah, the first thing I'd say is that uh, the primary reason I have been in-house all of my career basically and the, the primary reason for that is because I um have a huge amount of respect for people who are freelancers i i can't i'm not sure i have the the personality for it and maybe i'm just a little bit scared of it um so i um so so yeah so i worked in-house doing kind of marketing in a sort of general marketing role and then and then in in a small company that was actually a design agency and then and then more and more specialized in writing um i think it brings a different set of challenges, right? There's obviously a different, the financial picture is slightly different. There's some things that are better and some things that are worse. And I think there is a kind of different, um, maybe temperamental thing as well. So um, as, as an in-house member of any kind of company, you have um, all of the good and bad that goes along with being part of the company. So you have, um, you know, um, a permanent contract and, and, and good things like that. But you also have... Um, more process and HR and, and and headaches and things to deal with like that. Um, so I think it's a mixed bag. Um, I like the simplicity of it. I like not having to worry about my, where my work is coming from as much. You know, I can focus on the writing and that's been a really good thing for me. Um, most of my job is, is uh, you know, I don't do a vast amount of kind of new business side of things. I, I mainly focus on writing and making the writing really good, both for myself and for the other writers I work with. Um, and that's a really nice thing, but that's a privileged position to be in, I realize. Um, and I think it's just, you know, the grass is kind of always greener. I'm sure when you when people who've moved between freelance and um, staff roles kind of look at the other one, they go, well, it's really nice to be able to pick my own hours. Or they go, it was really nice to be able to you know, say this isn't my problem at the end of the day. And there is there is good and bad in both of those roles. But I am happy where I am for now. I like the idea of saying, this isn't my problem and passing it on to someone else. I think that's always appealing. Uh, so I would like to hear more about how you work with other writers and your role. Um, I mean, a couple of questions come to mind, like how can we be better at mentoring and copy chiefing other writers, especially a lot of 
freelance writers are growing micro agencies and adding subcontractors to their team. Uh, but we often feel like we're not doing this as well as we could be. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing to say would be um, everyone feels like they're not doing it right. Um, so everyone, you, if you are a conscientious leader and if you are in a position where you are managing other people and you're giving them creative feedback, you you are always worried about um, getting it wrong or kind of not giving them enough or maybe guiding them too much. I worry a lot about, you know, because I do a mixture of writing myself and directing other people, um, I worry that I'm being kind of too prescriptive and, and you're having, you have to check yourself about what is about uh, me approaching something a certain way because that's the way I do it and what is about what's right for the job and what's right for the client and what's right for the project. Um, and balancing those two is kind of an ongoing process of self-checking, I think getting getting an external person, you know, if I'm lucky enough to work in an agency so I can ask someone else's opinion if they're not part of that um, relationship and not part of that uh, that project that can be really useful but it's yeah it's it's an ongoing process of I think you need to you need to really be thinking about reining in and letting people make mistakes and letting people learn through their mistakes because I think we all know as copywriters that's how we've got better through our careers um, and helping someone else do that is is a is a very um, rewarding thing to do but it's also a really challenging thing to do it's not easy and I think you can be a really great copywriter and, and not be any good at that and that's okay. But I think knowing what you're good at is a really powerful thing. Sam, will you talk a little bit about the creative process at your agency? You know, much of the work that I do is oftentimes, you know, alone in my office. I miss my agency days and the back and forth, uh, you know, the, the creativity that can happen from that. So will you just tell us a little bit about that creative process where you work? Yeah, absolutely. So it's worth saying at the time of recording, it's obviously a little bit strange because we're all working from home. So normally, sure. <laughs> normally we are in an agency in London and there are about 10 people in our team. So it's only a little office, a little agency. And we are all, by and large, not fully, but in, in, in that office day to day. You know, occasionally we are on site with clients or, or working from home or things like that. But basically we're all there day to day. Um, in terms of how it works, I think copywriting is really, so a copywriting agency, there aren't that many of us around, but there are a few of us. And I think it's really interesting because for some kinds of projects, it makes sense to replicate the, the kind of format of a design agency or a kind of advertising agency. And I think that's how lots of copywriting agencies structure themselves. So they will have a creative director who's, who's reviewing the work that writers create. And, and kind of signing it off, and then that goes out to the client, you know, in, in, in the kind of classic design agency mold. Um, actually, I think for writing projects, that often doesn't make sense, and, and you need a kind of slightly more flexible model that is maybe more more like the tech world, I don't know, but um, is more about people being more self-guided, and that person being someone who kind of spins plates and checks in and kind of acts as a sound, sounding board rather than um someone who is sort of a kind of rigid a kind of um gatekeeper if that makes sense um in terms of the kinds of work we do because that might be useful for, for um understanding uh, those challenges um our agency does a kind of real mixture so so when we when we first started i think we were doing um a lot of sort of what you might call classic copywriting briefs so we need a brochure can you help us write it or we need to create a new website and you know here are we want 50 words for this this paragraph we want 200 words on this page all of that kind of quite rigid um copywriting briefs um now much more of our work is kind of bigger and more strategic for the company so they will be bringing in bringing us in really to help with content strategy and to help with often if we're working kind of because we do sort of naming and we do things for startups as well so often it'll be kind of shaping quite big bits of the business that will come. Uh, so it's, it's a real mixture and we work across quite a lot, a lot of different sectors. Again, that's a really nice thing about being in an agency that happens to have a mixture of work is you get exposed to lots of different things. So we do a lot for arts clients, but we do, we do professional services and we do um, fast moving consumer goods, you know, kind of consumer products as well. So it's nice to have that mixture. So you guys are focused on words and the copy that goes into a particular advertisement. But when you look at the portfolio on the website, there's some pretty sweet design too. Will you uh, tell us a little bit about the design handoff and how you guys handle that on projects? Yeah. So again, it's a little bit of a mixture, which I feel like is a really annoying answer, but there we go. Um, so 
some of our work we are brief direct so we're working with the design agency and we will kind of work as a sub agency on a, on, on a team that is that's creating the creative work um and on other projects that design will be happening in-house with the client so we will be working directly with the client um we don't don't do any design ourselves so design is never part of what we're offering i mean sometimes that relationship flips so if we have a good relationship with the client we will bring in a design partner to help us with that but uh, essentially that's never as nice as our website looks i'm glad you glad you feel that way but that's never our um never our work but yeah we we collaborate closely with designers i mean i see personally i see writing is really as just a we should think of it as a design discipline you know we're making strategic decisions about how a brand should be represented um in the world um and you know really you should bring together the technical whatever technical skills you need to do that so that might be illustrators that might be writers that might be ux designers it could be a range of people but bringing those skills together and allowing them to collaborate in a in a kind of genuinely fluid um back and forth way is the best way towards a correct uh, a great creative result and i think historically writers have been in that position where they get asked an hour before the the thing needs to be sent to print. Oh, we need a new headline for this page. It needs to be seven words long because we don't want to change the design. What what should it be? Um, and I feel like that's generally not the best way to get get good work out of a writer. For copywriters who have an interest in becoming a creative director, whether it's working within an agency like yours or maybe building their own, what advice would you give them if they don't necessarily have that background but they want to get into it? It's a tricky one. I think it's a really valuable thing I did was some training. Um, there is lots of active training out there. So obviously, don't know. It depends where people are, but in the in the UK, the DNAD offers training in creative direction, and that's kind of aimed at creative directors of all kinds. So not just writers, but also you know art directors and and whatever. But um, it's actually there's lots of useful stuff on the kind of because there's there is an inevitable HR side to that you know you're looking after people and you want them to be motivated and you want them to have what they need and you want to hear from them about what you're getting right and what you're getting wrong and there's 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 a kind of set of HR skills there that you haven't necessarily had to develop as a writer so that's really important um, and on the other side of it I think is is just that is developing your kind of introspection skills and being able to I think lots of writers. Certainly, I uh, historically, and to some extent, still, um, and lots of other writers are don't don't really unpick the writing process that they go through. They just do it, and they're very good at it, so they can create great copy and they create a great result. But actually, thinking about the pro- breaking down the process of that is is what you need to do if you're going to be able to take other people through it and kind of mentor other people. So, Sam, I'm interested in your writing process. You know, when you get an assignment, what do you do in order to generate enough ideas to, you know, to work through the headlines, the the copy, whatever, you know, the assignment calls for? What's your process when you sit down to write? Yeah, well, it all starts with the brief, right? So um, making the briefing process really useful to, the, useful to you is the first thing, I think. Um, one thing I al- almost always do if I possibly have time is come to that initial conversation with the client with a list of questions and having having kind of immersed myself in in their brand and, and, and what they're trying to do, even if it's not, even if I don't know anything about the brief they're asking me about, I want to be able to ask them um, questions about what they do and kind of learn more about their business because I think that's that's what helps you start to think about different angles and think about different creative routes and all of that. Um, I often, as part of that, I often say to people, I'm going to ask, you know, I kind of preface the fact that I'm going to ask them lots of stupid questions and then proceed to ask them lots of stupid questions, which I think is a really valuable thing to do. I like to, I, I frame that around the point, you know, part of part of a copywriter's job is to um, take what they do and find what's interesting for a customer or, you know, whoever their audience is in what they do. Um, and they might ha- they might have a very they have a clear idea of what they want to sell and kind of the result they want from a business perspective, but they don't necessarily have a clear idea of what is actually appealing to the person they're talking to. Um, so I feel like a copywriter's job is to interrogate that and ask them, well, why should I care? And you know, be that kind of annoying devil's advocate. Um, so I try and do that in a briefing meeting without being too annoying. You know, but I think that that uh, ability to ask stupid questions is a really is a really good starting point for your creative process. Um, from there, 
what do I do? Um, well, I, I do a very old fashioned thing in that I try and work on paper to start with. So I try and write things down without editing myself too much, um, depending on the project and depending on timelines and all kinds of things that sometimes doesn't go so well. Um, I don't have time to do that, but um, I love to write, you know, just write down as many things I can before I start editing myself. And I try and separate the process of writing and editing as much as possible, which I think is quite an old school thing to do now, but I think can be really valuable in terms of if you start editing something and start crafting it, then you get stuck on that idea and you try and make that idea really good and you lose the fluidity of turning out 20 different ideas, all of which are crap, but all of which can be, you know, honed and, and refined and, and developed. Um, so I think that that process of, of doing things in a in, on paper or whatever your process is that stops you editing yourself as you write, you know, just churning stuff out, being the first stage of creative process can be really valuable. And then starting to refine and, and, and develop and circle the roots that are interesting and, and try and turn them into something that actually works and that is a bit more crafted. I like the idea of stupid questions. Can you tell us more about that or even more examples? I think you mentioned, you know, why should I care about this, which is a great question to ask. What are some other stupid questions that you've asked that um, maybe even take a little bit of courage to ask uh, because it's uncomfortable or it is a stupid question? Yeah, I think courage is a really good way of putting it because I think when you ask questions like you, you can often be in a briefing conversation and you feel like, oh, I should probably know the answer to that so I won't say anything. Um, and that's just a there's, a there's a confidence thing you have to build up there, I think, because I think it's really useful for you to say, you know, ask, well, um, well, how, how did we get there? Why, why should someone do that? So, so you're more expensive than all of the competitors, or so like, if why, why would I pick you over this other competitor? And those questions feel kind of awkward. You feel like you, you know, you're a lawyer in court and you're trying to trip someone up. But actually, that's how you kind of develop the argument and you know, help them exp- explain what does set them apart, or what doesn't set them apart. You know, I think uh, I often get briefs from clients that that. that list their USPs, right? So they're, they're, they're launching a new product and the USPs of the product are, you know, that it's um, easy to use and that it's um, 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 user-friendly or whatever. Um, and I, I look at that and I go, well, those are, you know, everyone says that. <laughs> That's not a distinguishing thing. And, and, you know, I don't necessarily think every product has to have USPs. I don't, I don't necessarily I think it's about finding, finding the story to tell. But I do think asking those questions that feel a bit awkward um, can help you unpick how much they've thought about it, maybe, but also, you know, just what 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 angle you're gonna you're going to be able to take. It also allows you to start sort of sense checking um, what they're expecting from you. Because I think you can often there can often be a problem when during a briefing process with mismatched expectations that you feel like you've got a really steer, clear steer from what they've said. But actually, you go back to them and they say, oh, well, I wanted it to be much more. Um, you didn't talk about this thing. And it's like, well, that was never in the brief. So I think asking those dumb questions can be a really good way of kind of unpicking that in the meeting. And I think, as I say, I tend to preface that with saying, with telling them I'm going to do that and saying, you know, I'm going to ask you things. You're going to think I'm really annoying and tedious and that I'm asking all of the stupid questions and that I'm wasting your time. But the reason I'm doing that is because I want to hear you talk it through and I want to unpick this argument for why people should buy this product. And I'm guessing it's sometimes uh, the result that you get by asking those unique questions or maybe they're even silly or dumb questions. Sometimes that uncovers a, a big idea that you can then use in the advertising. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know it would be really helpful for me to have an example at my fingertips of that. And I'm afraid I don't. But yes, totally. If you if you ask those questions, that can quite often unpick some route that's really interesting. You know, actually, the the thing that really sets this product apart is X um, that no one's no one's put in the brief because no one's had that conversation out loud and kind of really unpicked it in that way. So, 100 percent, that can be that, that can often be the spark for a really good idea. So while we're uh, talking about, you know, that big idea, how do you know when you've come across an idea that's maybe, you know, a, a step above, you know, when you're writing out all of the headlines and you finally get that one, you're like, yep, this is the winner. What does that feel like? And how do you know that you've hit hit the gold mine there? <laughs> that's a hard question to answer. Um, I think there's a most really good ideas have an innate simplicity and they work to someone 
even they won't have had to go through all of that process of contact staying and you know all of the research that you've gone through they just it just has an an immediate um sort of fluidity and it just feels right um i know that's the worst answer in the world that it just feels right but i think that is a lot of the process of copywriting is kind of honing something until it feels like it's the it's the most elegant version of whatever the idea is um and it says just enough without saying too much um i think that's that's often what underpins a good idea, but I accept that that's uh, it's a, it's one of those annoying things that people give in creative interviews where it kind of it's not got anything to really grapple onto. But I do think that's true: is that you just you, you you kind of refining things until that point where it feels like you've got just enough there, and that's the point at which it really sings. And maybe this is a similar process for um, naming and naming for the startups, but I think the whole idea around naming and and selling that as a package is really appealing. It's not something I've done. Um, Can you just talk about how the naming process is different and um, how you need to approach that? And even how, I always wonder about the deliverables that you send to a client for naming. Are you sending a bunch of names or are you really narrowing it down to the best name? Can you just give us a little bit more info about that? Yeah, naming so naming is a really challenging thing because I think there's there's obviously one there's a whole legal side to it, right? People have to have a name they can they can use, and we're not we're not lawyers, so that can be a challenging process. And I think we we say that up front, and we sometimes we work with with um with a partner who will who will check those names and kind of be checking if they're viable and if they can be used. So that that's one whole thing. But in terms of the kind of creative process, I've worked with you know I've seen lots of different naming processes, lots of design agencies um, that we work with will also do naming as part of their services. And you see what they end up with. And it's they, they will provide a client with um, a list of like 200, 300 names. Um, and I, from my perspective, I think it's very hard for anyone to look at that and, and make a decision and to get, you know, to come up with a good product from that kind of process. If you're just throwing all of the mud at the wall and seeing what will stick, then um, I'm not sure that's 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 a great creative process. And I think if you tried that with any other kind of part of um, any other creative product, you'd be like, well, that's a ridiculous way of doing it. I'm not going to give you 200 options. I'm not going to give you 200 groups. You know, that's, that's that's silly. And people do with naming because the product is small, right? But I don't I don't necessarily think it's it's a great reflection on your your creativity and the insight you're bringing if you give people 200 options and say, pick one of these. So when we do naming, we try and make it more of a process. You know, so we'd have an initial workshop where we are exploring themes. Um, and exploring the kind of names that work. And I think there's a bit of sort of training we do at, at the start of that to talk about, you know, the different kinds of names that can work. I think a lot of people have preconceptions of what makes good names. Um, and actually, lots of names that we use and that we think are great names now felt like quite weird names at the time. So Google is is obviously, it's, it's, it's a number and it's quite an abstract thing that, that appealed to engineers but means nothing to most people who use the product every day. And the reason it caught on is because it has a simplicity and it's really easy to pronounce and it works well in different languages and all kinds of things. But na- naming is, is a really tricky thing because people bring to it, I think, some preconception of what they want the name to capture, but often a name can't really do that. And, and um, the names that they have in their heads that are great are great because they've built up this resonance and we know things about the brands and they've built up value and equity over time so that can be a bit of a challenge i think taking people through that story and talking to them about different types of names we use some um visual kind of grids to show people where names can sit in the market because i think naming is inevitably a like any creative process it's also about you know for a commercial creative process it's about finding your place in the market and you can pick names that help you fit into that market and become an established player or you can pick a name that sets you apart and and kind of bring something fresh and, and different. Um, so kind of taking taking people through that visually can be really useful. And we, we do that in a kind of workshop process where, people, where we're plotting things and saying, you know, is this expected for your market? Is it, um, is it abstract or is it more descriptive? You know, are you calling yourself British Airways, which is a super descriptive name, exactly says what that company is about? Or are you calling yourselves, you know, like Monarch or the name of another airline that is a little bit more abstract? Um, 
you know, and the, I think taking people through that argument is really useful. In terms of the actual creative product we give people for that, it's often a very short list of names, and then we will develop, we will iterate with them from there. And, you know, so we'll pick up on themes that we think are interesting and say, you know, these names might not be quite right, but which of these themes, which of these formats, which of these ideas feel interesting, and then we will explore those more. So I think naming particularly um, compared to other copywriting processes is, is getting the process right is as important as the creative product. Yeah, now that you talk about that, I kind of want to uh, come up with a product for you guys to name so I can sit through that naming workshop because it sounds <laughs> like it sounds like not only an interesting process, but a really fun process. And, yeah. you know, when I've worked on naming projects in the past, it's definitely been different from that. And usually, you know, a, a, a much tighter kind of a project. So uh, that's really interesting to me. But one of the things that it strikes me that agencies do so much better than freelancers is the presentation of the work that we create. Uh, and it's, you know, probably because you often have people dedicated to client management, you know, who aren't necessarily doing the the client work, but will you talk about the presentation process and your involvement when you have final copy, you know, maybe it's a name, maybe it's an ad campaign or sales collateral, whatever it is, how does that get presented to the client? It's an ongoing um, question because I think people really struggle with presenting copy because you don't, you kind of, you want to explain your thinking. You don't want to just leave people to it because there's, there's kind of, you want to tell them how you've got there. But also uh, I've been on many calls where I then ended up reading, reading out a lot of copy to people. And that feels like a very awkward um, situation as well, because you're asking people to react to something but like immediately on a phone call and they will pick up on some bits of it, but they'll miss other things. I think that's, that can be very challenging. And um, what we tend to do is, um, and this is not a perfect model because it depends on, you know, it depends on the situation and the relationship and all kinds of things. But um, I like to um, create a presentation, which is, it's basically just the copy with, with a little, maybe a little bit of rationale, but not too much. Um, share that ahead of time but then tell people I'm going to explain it and talk them through it on a call and then or or, or in a meeting in, in you know when we when we can do meetings again um, and then talk them through it um, but avoiding the process of just reading out a lot of copy to someone which I think can be really hard so if, if the ideal situation is someone has read that and reviewed it but then you have time to justify the choices you've made made and explain the creative ideas behind it um, and then giving people the opportunity to go away and and kind of mull that over and then come back to you with feedback. So again, I feel like it's, a, it's getting that process right is, is is important. And in terms of what we do, in terms of putting together presentations, we do put together. We tend to present things in like a in in a deck. So I think it probably has uh, looks a bit nicer than than it than it might do from from some freelancers. But equally, there's nothing particularly special about it. So it's not. We're not designers and, and we're just using, we tend to use like a Google Slides template and, and lay out the copy neatly in that. It's nothing more complicated than that. So I think if people, if freelancers think that agencies are uh, stealing a march on them by making everything look really beautiful, we, we are certainly not that agency. We're making it look neat and professional and, and you know, managing that process of how we share it with them. But it's not, um, there's not too many bells and whistles around it. The presentation that you're sharing before you jump on a call with them, is it roughly like five slides or 20? And are you sending it an hour before or in the morning of or a day before you actually jump on the call with them? <laughs> uh, it depends a lot on the client. <laughs> so right. I will tend to, uh, partly because I work, um, I'm in, based in London, but we're, we work with clients around the world and we're often working with a lot of our clients through North America. So there's a whole time zone thing as well. Um, I like to give people um, something I'm going to talk them through at least a few hours before I'm going to talk them through it and ideally the day before. It obviously it depends a little bit on schedules and things like that. Um, but my goal really is that people have had time to at least skim that document so they have some idea of, so they're, I guess, a bit prepared for, for how long they're going to have to listen to me and what I'm going to talk them through. Um, and even better if they can come to me with questions. Uh, that said, I don't, want it, I don't want it to be long enough that they have kind of made up their mind about it. So I want them to have, it's a bit of an art, but I want them to have had a read of it, read of it and, and, and kind of come to it with, with sort of, 
maybe maybe a couple of opinions, but I don't necessarily want them to have have finalised how they feel and had a chance to discuss it there. And I'd love to, you know, if there's multiple clients in the room, which there usually is, um, I'd I'd love for them to have all read it individually, but not had time to compare next. <laughs> no, that makes sense. That helps. Yeah. Let's talk about your developing a brand voice. I know that's something that your agency does as well. What does it take to build a a brand voice the right way? And where have you found copywriters messing this up or um, just making some mistakes with capturing that brand voice? Well, I think one thing that often is a challenge with brand voice is that 70% of, of what of kick for most businesses um a lot of what makes their brand's voice um effective is is the same right so it's not about so some some of building a brand voice is about differentiation but a lot of it is just about um the general principles of good writing so making things clear and making things feel personal and making things direct and talking to talking about things the audience will care about rather than from, so talking about benefits rather than features um and lots of those things are the same for almost any company you know not not in absolutely every situation and we certainly work with some brands that where their voice is a lot more esoteric but generally uh, I, th- I would say there is you know there is a half or two thirds of that of that process should be the same for lots of lots of brands and it's really about kind of the principles of good writing um so that's one thing i think is often um missed because i think people want to dress it up to be you know this is completely uniquely created for you and every aspect of it is honed for your brand and i think actually being upfront about and saying you know some of this is the principles of good writing and we are just going to kind of lay out we think you know you can you should break up long paragraphs and and you should make sure this is personal and you should you know all of those things that's some of it and kind of being upfront about the distinction between that and the bits that are differentiating the bits that's the kind of cherry on top of the cake you know that's actually setting them apart i think being upfront about that can be really helpful the other thing that i find that um kind of brand voice projects often miss is certainly when they're coming from this is more something that i see from when design agencies have done a kind of tone of voice piece is that they're often very very top line so they might be useful for someone who's quite a good writer and knows the brand very well already um, because it's just a couple of principles or a couple of tips or something like that. But actually, for most people who have to write for that brand day to day, it's not enough to go on. So certainly when we when we work on brand voice projects, we tend to take really focus on samples and really focus on samples that cover a broad range of communication situations. So ultimately, every brand has, you know, almost everyone in the company writes on behalf of that company, whether it's some of them will be writing marketing campaigns and writing um, copy for the website, which is very visible, but other people are writing emails to clients and other, other, you know, salespeople are calling people and talking to them. And there's, there's all of this, you know, we're all communicating in words all day long and all of that adds up to the brand voice. You know, we, we very much see that all as part of the brand voice and part of what you should be thinking about when you think about the words you use. So for that reason, kind of picking samples and kind of working in a way that where you actually listen to those people as much as possible. So we try and do workshops and kind of have an interactive element to that as well. Listening to people and saying, what are your communications challenges? What, do you, you know, you, you sales rep, you have to call 50 people every day and talk to them about this, this product. What do you find hard? Um, what, where do you trip up this script that people have given you? How does that work? Does that you know what? What is what are people? What is not working for you? Which bits of that do you skip over? Because you know that they turn people off. And kind of learning as much as you can from different parts of the business is what we find makes a brand voice um, project actually effective and, and something that people can actually use rather than just a really nice document that sits on a shelf above the kind of head of brand's desk and that no one ever reads. Yeah, this seems immensely helpful to uh, anybody who's working in communications at a company, even a small company. Uh, I know you guys call this the uh, verbal identity, but uh, so much different from you know the brand identity, which just shows you how to use the logo, maybe shows you some fonts and colors, even some photos, but doesn't really go in depth 
uh, I really like the idea of providing you know, sample emails, sample captions, and lots of copy blocks that show people how to use uh, a brand voice effectively. So I, I think this is a, a really cool product and something that most agencies don't offer. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I certainly think that a lot of the conventions of the way we do, you know, tone of voice guidelines being the kind of classic product that people produce, a lot of the conventions, conventions of the way we do that have been inherited from design brand guidelines, as you say. And the thing with design guidelines is that like two or three people in a company, even a big company, often very few people have to design things. Um, so, and they are experts and they understand um, those rules and they can apply them. So they can be very prescriptive and very simple, but for voice, everyone is using words on behalf of the company. So you need something that is more all encompassing and something that involves more, more listening, you know, because people have to use this day to day in their company and they will all have different challenges and they will all have, they all use words every day. So hearing from them, I think people, you know, copywriters are sometimes because, you know, we've all had that horrible feedback from people who haven't really got what we're trying to do. And, and we're scared about talking to people about how they use words and how we can help them. Whereas actually for, for an effective brand voice um, project, that's a really important part of the process. So Sam, while we're talking about this, can we talk about the mistakes that we tend to make when we're creating brand voice guides or even verbal identities? So aside from leaving out you know, the whole brand voice, the words, what are other mistakes that uh, you tend to see us making when we create a brand guide? So I think, yeah, it's another thing that I find I see a lot of, but often kind of uh, I think it's it's not so much about mistakes, I guess. It's about things that I think are sometimes um, not not thought through enough or kind of potentially slightly misused. So a really good example of that would be um, personas. So I see uh, we use personas sometimes in, in um, guidelines and, and kind of they can be really helpful for um, bringing something to life, but I think they have all kinds of pitfalls. I, I realize I should probably just explain what I mean by that, just just so it's clear. So you often see in in brand voice guidelines that they say we want this, we want our voice to sound like Jeff Goldblum or something like that, right? They'll pick a character, or they will pick. Sometimes it will be a, a literal real person or a, or a kind of character in in fiction, and sometimes it will be. Um, like people use like ar archetypes, like Jungian you know, archetypes. It'll be the challenger or it'll be some kind of little term that kind of summarizes what that person is. So the, so the bold pioneer or whatever. Uh, and those, I think, you know, those are often derided because they often um, feel like the kind of thing that branding people say to you and they just, you know, no one actually knows what they mean. Um, and actually I think they have a real use because I think if you pick the right one, it can give people a shared understanding of what this brand is about. And it can be the, the thing that they have in their heads day to day that reminds them of, of all of the kind of the detailed stuff that sits below that. But they can also be um, to take people in really different directions. So, so a problem I have with them is particularly when people pick real people. Um, I often see ones that pick actors, for example. And um, I think that, that that is then very influenced by like what people happen to have seen that actor in. Um, what they happen to know about that person. So yeah, your Tom Hardy is different to my Tom Hardy, right? Because I've watched Peaky Blinders and you've watched something, you know, whatever it is. I do, uh, it varies depending on the person. But I do think that uh, everyone in the world has different resonances and associations with different people and different and even different words. So, like, so, so there's a real ch challenge when you're creating a persona, when you're creating something that's supposed to be that top level because it can steer people the wrong way. Um, so I think the the general failings I see with some tone of voice guidelines is that they um, they worked for everyone who was part of their creation. They worked for the people in the room, but they maybe don't speak enough to the challenges that other people are going to face interpreting them. You know, no one's been in and gone. No one's been in other than a kind of sign-off sense-checking point of view, like, are you happy with this? No one has been in and kind of really interrogated them and, and said, so, okay, so... Can you actually try, based on these guidelines, can you actually try and write this? What do you think the missing pieces are? Does this work for what you need to write day to day? Or actually, does it, is it, is it, does it kind of feel irrelevant because it just doesn't cover this whole situation that you have to deal with every day? Uh, Sam, I read on your website, maybe it was one of the articles you had posted or your agency had posted about writing better luxury copy. 
And that's not something we've talked about in the podcast. Are you able to talk about what that what that means and what it looks like to write better luxury copy? Sure. Yeah. And it's um it, it's a it's a slightly tricky topic because I think one one luxury comes such a broad range of things, right? So people can be talking about um perfumes or they can be talking about yachts or they can be talking about they can be talking about things that everyone buys but sees as aspirational so you know is apple a luxury brand kind of because it's kind of expensive right um or it can be things that that very few people will ever actually interact with so that's that's one challenge um and i think luxury brands write in lots of really different ways um so some of them write almost nothing you think a lot about a lot of fashion houses there's very little copy to anything they do right it's all certainly all of their ads are visually led and they're about selling an idea um but there's almost no writing to a lot of what they do um if you um flip that around there are lots of certainly in the uk there's lots of kind of old british bands that write in a very victorian style um which is actually often really lovely we work with a couple of them so i'm not i'm not <laughs> not suggesting that's a bad thing but it's it's a kind of different interpretation of luxury you know something that's very tongue-in-cheek and very playful and very fun i think luxury brands what's really interesting about them is that they are less constrained than some other kinds of brands because they don't necessarily their business doesn't depend on moving product to normally it doesn't depend on moving like mass product to mass consumers so they they are less focused on um click-through rates and seo and things that might be very important to a different kind of brand um and they are more focused maybe on storytelling and kind of creating an image and creating a a world that that really engages people and that can be really fun from copywriting perspective. So I think most a lot of the most interesting brands that I've written for just from a kind of pure writing craft point of view and things that have been fun to write um, have been luxury brands because you know we've, we've worked on written a whiskey brand for example and it allowed us to write in a very lyrical poetic way that um, you wouldn't that wouldn't be right for most brands because if, if if a brand was trying to you know get hits online and and that was the kind of primary metric for how how successful they were going to be um it would have been very tough for them to pull off that kind of voice um sorry that was a slightly rambling answer did i answer <laughs> i answer your question rambling answers are always are always good so that's yeah, luxury <laughs> for sure so i'm curious Sam, if you've noticed a difference in the kind of writing that we need to do with how the world's changed over the last couple of months, you know, with all of the the shutdown, uh, you know, the the fear that some people have, the reaction to that fear, which you know is, is hey, forget it all or whatever. Like, how has what you have to write, what you have to create for the brands that you work for, changed? Yeah, it's certainly. I mean, it's an ongoing thing, and I think people are reacting to it as it as it changes. And I think we're we're entering a period now where we've gone past that initial kind of shock reaction, where everyone's sort of talking mainly, either not talking at all, or talking about how you could still access their products and services in this uh, in this new world, or possibly just talking about. Well, I think a lot of um, brands um, were talking about the positive things they were doing to help in that in that new world, which was great i think it's that was a challenge because sometimes that could that could feel if you got the tone of that wrong it could feel exploitative rather than helpful and that's that's the whole challenge but um so there was that initial phase and now we're in the phase where people are talking about well how is the world different now and and the things that we need to prioritize and value how have they changed um so you know whenever the way consumers think and behave changes then you know the way we write copy and the kind of creative that we come up with needs to change. Um, I I'm, I think you mentioned in the preamble that I'm also a, uh, I write fiction, and I think there's there's been some I've seen on on Twitter people talking about this idea. Oh, we're going to be drowned in things that are all about um, uh, sort of dystopian books about coronavirus and you know how how everything is the world will never be the same. And I, my reaction to that was kind of like, oh well, well shouldn't we be? You know, this is the biggest thing that has happened to lots of people in their lifetimes, and it's entirely appropriate that we create art about that and that we um, we respond to that in the things that we do. Anyway, sorry, that's a sort of sidetrack. Uh, what what have what have we been doing for clients? I think it's uh, we we work with some health brands that had a need immediate needs in terms of kind of content strategy. Well, how do we respond to this? What do we say about what we're doing? 
Um, so that was a really interesting challenge. And that was a challenge um, that lots of copywriters, I think, will find familiar in just doing things quickly in a responsive way. Um, and that was kind of, sort of super interesting and super challenging, but enjoyable as well. And then I think there's a, there's a lot of brands that are grappling with the fact that they can't sell through some of the channels that they used to sell through. So certainly we work with, I was talking to a brand today, actually, I won't give too much away about who they were, but um, they were saying that, you know, most of their, they are they sell a, um, a sort of luxury product, um, but it's almost always sold. Most of it is sold in store, in, in, you know, in, in person. And that's obviously not been a thing for them for, for the past couple of months. And it's going to be at very best uh, reduced for many months more. Um, so there was the, their challenge was how do we bring this to life online? You know, this product is very tactile and it's very much about the experience of being up close to it. Um, how do we how do we do that in words? Um, and how do we kind of cut through um, in a world where we really need to communicate online and where our product doesn't feel as special and doesn't feel as differentiated as it does if you actually touch it and feel it and, and you know have it in front of you? Um, so it's that you know they were thinking, and that, that's a challenge we've got to tackle in in our copywriting. But they, they they were thinking about you know what is the experience of this product and how has it changed? And I think that's that's a question that everyone should be asking themselves right now. I think it's kind of in some ways a you know it's a it's a it's a really challenging time for everybody. I think if you just look at it from the kind of narrow kind of creative process, it can also be really interesting. And I think lots of companies have kind of you've seen you know your local um, certainly around me, there have been wine shops and delis and things like that who've had to kind of make up new business models and new ways of doing things over, overnight. And I think the same is kind of true in copywriting. You know, brands are just suddenly realizing they're going to have to communicate their value and the things they do in a totally different way. And copywriters have a really important role to play in helping them do that. I would like to talk more about you, Sam. What has been your biggest struggle as a creative, as a writer? <laughs> What is my biggest? So I think I was talking earlier about the writing things on paper and why I do that in terms of getting getting ideas out rather than finessing ideas. And I think that speaks to a general uh, challenge that certainly I have is that um, it's very easy for me to focus in on one thing and try and polish that and lose sight of the kind of range of possibilities. So that is that has been a real uh, that is something that I have fixed myself through ways of working and the actual the process I go through. Um, but it's definitely an ongoing challenge. You know, how do I not just pick up one thing and, and run with that? How do I step back and, and kind of really think about the full range of ideas? So Sam, if somebody were listening to this and they thought, I like what he's done with his career, I kind of want to go to the same place. What advice would you give to them? How should they get started and what should they be doing and focused on in order to you know, get to where you are today? It's very flattering when you say get to where get get to where I am today. Like I'm in a very lofty position. I don't. I don't yes, know. of course. Yeah, you've you, the pinnacle of your career. <laughs> I certainly don't feel that way, but it's nice to hear someone say that. Um, so I I think well, firstly, I would say that I think copywriting is a really um hard industry to get into, as in the roots into it just aren't clear. So I mentioned that I did a science degree. I'm not from a kind of, I think lots of copywriters did English or, or something like that or some kind of communications um, degree um, or course or whatever. Um, I did something different and I, and I only found copywriting as a career because I was doing jobs that involved having to write words for companies and realized that that was something you could do as a job. Um, which sounds maybe that sounds really naive and, and stupid, but I think that we think of partly because I think this is partly Mad Men's fault. Um, but that for copywriting got very narrowly um, defined as like the person who writes the tagline in an ad um, for a long time. And actually, the truth of it is that copywriting is something that, you know, whether you're a full time copywriter or whether you're just doing it as part of another job is something that exists for every company and is a big part of, you know, the way every company does business, particularly in a, in a kind of online world. Um, so I think the, there's a first challenge there of like, how do you even get started in copywriting? I think my advice there would be certainly my first jobs in copywriting were not copywriting jobs. They were jobs that allowed me to do some copywriting as part of the job. And so, you know, I was very up for doing anything that involved writing. And I said so, and I, you know, told people around 
around me you know okay we need to send an email out about this thing can I kind of draft draft that and 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 be the person who's sort of responsible for that um and people picked up on the fact that I was good at writing and that I enjoyed doing that and then writing became more and more of my job so even if I was in a job that I think I was called marketing manager I was at a design agency and I was primarily sort of managing um you know PR and putting things on the website and things like that but more and more of my job became about writing because I expressed enthusiasm for that. Now I was lucky with the environment I was in and obviously not every workplace is going to be supportive of that, but I would certainly say that as a general rule, I think people very people look for like I think looking for a job title that is copywriter is certainly one way of getting a copywriting job, but actually there are loads of very satisfying quote unquote copywriting jobs that are not called copywriter if that makes sense yeah no, that totally makes sense so um because we teased it at the beginning I've, I've got to ask my final question why did you write a book about anorexia yeah so so I will if I, if I may I'll put a plug for the title of myself I wrote a book called the year I didn't eat um which is out in the North America and the UK um and it's for teens so it's for sort of 10 to 15 year olds something like that um, and it's about a boy who has anorexia. And I wrote that because I, I had experienced that myself when I was a teenager. And there is very little um, fiction, well, there's very little anything really that deals with um, that what that experience is like as a man, um, which is a little bit, I think, a little bit different um, to what that experience is like as a woman. So I wanted to write a book that was about that and sort of told that story and, and was helpful maybe to people who were going through that and also people who were who knew people who'd, who'd experienced that and kind of wanted to understand it a little bit more. Um, and like, I guess, like a lot of teen novels, it's also kind of about being a teenager and, and the challenges of that and the challenges of talking to people around you about how you feel, um, which is, I think, a very relevant topic at the moment, I hope. Um, but yeah, I wanted to do that. I, I've always kind of written things for personal interest alongside my day job, alongside writing kind of commercially. Um, and I, I I would have to say to, to I think there's probably lots of copywriters who, who listen to your podcast who are also budding writers. I would say that that is not going to be my full time career anytime soon, sadly. Um, but I enjoy doing it, and it's kind of it's I think um, makes you a better writer of all kinds if you approach writing from different angles and try to do different things for different audiences. Yeah, we uh, we can look forward to the movie version, I suppose, of of your book, and then you can spend all of your time writing. Yeah. Exactly. Then 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 I quit and go and sit on a beach somewhere or whatever. Yeah. No. I. I <laughs> it's yeah. Publishing is is tricky, but I have enjoyed the experience nonetheless. And I think you have to approach it in that way of you know a love of writing being the primary thing and the the reason you're doing it. Sam, this has been a really insightful look into you know your writing life, but also the agency life, which we don't get a chance to talk about very often. And so we want to thank you for that. If people want to connect with you or learn more about what you do, where should they go? How can they find you? Yeah, so so my agency is called Read Words, so R E E D Words, um, and you will find us on Twitter as that Read Words, and on ReadWords.com is our website. Um, and I'm Samuel Pollan, and I am Samuel underscore Pollan on Twitter, and that's probably the best. I'm I am there far too often, so that's probably the best place to find me if you're looking for me. I also have a website that talks more about my book if you are interested in that. All right, thank you so much, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Thanks. Take care. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode. Mm-hmm.